Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. and welcome to the Third Reich History Podcast. Today we're going to be taking on the Blonde Beast, the Butcher of Prague, and Hitler's hangman, Reinhard Heydrich. Today Ryan and I are going to be centering our discussion of Heydrich around Robert Gerwarth's book, Hitler's Hangman, one of the many monikers that Heydrich brought with him. But Ryan, why why don't you give us an outline of of who Heydrich was, uh, why he's so important. We're going to be talking about him today. Well, Heydrich was a key player in the Nazi regime. He was Himmler's deputy in the SS. He created the SS Intelligence Service, the SD. He was the head of all ununiformed police in Germany, including the Gestapo and the detective police. Uh, he unified these organizations to the Reich Main Security Office. He created the, the task groups that became the murder squads as part of the Holocaust. He was the driving force behind the implementation of Jewish policy. He chaired the Wannsee Conference, where uh, the final solution to the Jewish question was proposed. And he organized the Holocaust as a result and ended up as the Reich's protector of Bohemia and Moravia in Czech lands. And of course, it would be in the protectorate when Heydrich finally got what was coming to him uh, after a team of Czechs and Slovaks sent by the British government, by the SOE, uh, on behalf of the exiled Czechoslovakian government, would infiltrate the protectorate, hunt down Heydrich, and assassinate him. And before his assassination, uh, Heydrich was, of course, very important within the Nazi regime, but he wasn't terribly well known outside of Germany. And in fact, it would be his assassination that really uh, raised his profile and, and made him famous around the world. He's uh, he is he is a character that if you deal with any of these parts of any of the most horrific parts of the history of the Third Reich, whether it's the Holocaust or policing or the intelligence services, that you cannot get away from. He he has his fingers in many pies. As a result, there's long been a historical debate about just what his motives were and just who he was as a person that we will be diving into today with a narrative biography of Reinhard Heydrich, the Reich's protector of Bohemia and Moravia, chief of security police and the intelligence service. So let's begin at the beginning. What do we know from Robert Gerwarth about Heydrich's family and the household that he grew up in? Yeah, so I suppose really we need to begin before the beginning, at least from Heydrich's perspective. He came from a a well-to-do upper middle class uh, family based out of Halle. Uh, his father, Bruno, was a successful musician, a very successful musician. He had performed, uh, he had written operas, which were uh, staged 
across the country, uh, and he founded a conservatory in Halle, a, a music school, uh, which uh, brought in a decent income for the family. And uh, this was at a time uh, before gramophones were, were used to, to play music. So quite a few, few people would go uh, and learn to play instruments so that they could entertain in the home. Now, Bruno enjoyed this position, but there was a drawback that came along with it. He was finally listed in this encyclopedia that uh, covered music and musicians in Germany, but he was shocked when he read his entry uh, and found that uh, he was listed as a Jewish musician. Now, this was traceable to uh, his stepfather, uh, whose name was Seuss. Uh, he was a German, but the, the name sounded Jewish, which made this claim plausible. And it really was intentional libel. Someone that he didn't get along with so well had had that bit about him being uh, a Jewish musician inserted into the encyclopedia. And this rumor would haunt Bruno and, and later uh, haunt Reinhard Heydrich as well. The history of that entry is actually quite amusing. It goes back to one of Bruno Heydrich's students from his conservatory who had left in disrepute, who then used his connections with the editorial team of this musical encyclopedia to, yeah, like Chris says, libel Bruno Heydrich. It ended up becoming a sensation in the city of Halle as Bruno fought to defend his reputation. Of course, at this time in the late 19th century, in late 19th century Germany, there was not the same type of legal discrimination against Jewish people that existed in the Third Reich. But within the upper middle class, upper class socialite circles that Bruno moved as an international opera singer and writer of operas and general man of culture, he would not have been welcome nor enjoyed the same level of success if, if it was found to be true that he was Jewish. The other interesting part of Heydrich's upbringing is his mother, Elizabeth Heydrich, who was a Catholic. Bruno actually converted in order to marry Elizabeth, which meant that Heydrich grew up as a Catholic at a time in Germany when Alan Confino has a great way of putting this in his, uh, to be German was to be Prussian, Protestant, and nationalist. So Bruno was very much a nationalist, as, as we shall see, but this Catholic background was something that from the beginning made Heydrich something of an outsider in the halls of power. Uh, Heydrich himself was born in 1904, and they gave him the name Reinhard based upon uh, one of the operas that Bruno had written. Bruno's favorite heroic character in his opera was this, this character, Reinhard. And they would give this name to, to his son with all of their high hopes for him. And being born in 1904, Reinhard was part of this war youth generation. So he would experience the war. He was, he was old enough to, to know what was going on and, and to feel it, but he wasn't able to directly participate in the war to, to go off and fight. Now, once the war came to an end, he did have something of an opportunity to participate in a Freikorps in Halle, and, and he did, but uh, at the time he, he was 15 years old, he, he didn't participate in fighting. Uh, he 
was really just engaging it as as kind of uh, a lark. Uh, it was an adventure that he could be involved in, but it really didn't involve any danger for him. Well, the childhood experience in Hala is quite interesting, right? This idea of the war youth generation, Michael Vilt has a great book about it called the An Uncompromising Generation that looks at the group of people that Hadrick surrounded himself with at the Reich main security office he would eventually build. And a defining characteristic of this group of SS intellectuals that would eventually come to command the security forces and orchestrate the Holocaust was that they had been members of this war youth generation. Sebastian Hafner is another really good source on this, talking about how the war was sort of experienced from afar as this kind of great adventure People would come into their classrooms. Young boys would be hearing about the stories from the front that would be read at school assemblies by headmasters, uh, a kind of running count, what Sebastian Hafner would later call irresponsible numbers games about casualties or uh, advances being made, amount of territory that had been captured in square kilometers and so forth, would be read. And so the this young generation that would go on to become the most radical part of the Nazi apparatus, grew up listening to these stories about the war as something celebratory, yet distant, uh, something noble, yet without really experiencing or having an understanding of sacrifice that went along with it, or the horrors of warfare. Yeah, they, they only experienced the romanticized part of the war. They didn't see the consequences of it. Yeah. And so this, when everything came in 1918, uh, as a bolt from the blue, as it were, it was a great surprise and shock for the war to have suddenly ended because up to that point, things had been presented as, oh, well, it's getting hard, but we're still winning. We're still in the field. Things are still good. And a narrative of betrayal, of stab in the back that we've talked about before uh, became quite popular as a result. Interestingly enough, Bruno Heydrich's opera that the character Reinhard comes from involves the trope of the stab in the back. It was clearly something that Bruno himself was uh, quite shocked by, like many national-minded Germans at this time, and who bought into this larger narrative. So this was, this was a trope that was part of the household that Heydrich grew up in. Halle, too... I mean, the descriptions that Gerwarth gives of, of Heydrich's youth, especially during the German Revolution of 1918-19, were quite harrowing, eh? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there was street fighting in, in Halle. There was fear of a, a communist revolution. And I believe quite a few people were killed as well. Well, the the there was a general strike as part of the larger Spartacus uprising that seized the... I believe it's the city hall. No, the city theater that sees the city theater that was only a few blocks away from Heydrich's childhood home. So literally communist arms insurgents seized one of the central buildings in town and a street battle involving artillery and machine guns occurred a few blocks away from his home. So this idea that Germany had been betrayed from within on the one hand, but then, two that the communists posed a, a, a sort of imminent threat was brought home to Heydrich in a way that he, or the, the narrative that was being presented to him, was proven in front of his eyes in a way 
leaving aside the larger considerations of like what the actual goals of the Spartacus movement were and da 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 da. But he didn't necessarily internalize that yet, though. Uh, he would not be at all political in this period. He he wouldn't be political for some time after this. I mean, sure, he he had seen it, uh, and and yes, he had participated peripherally uh, in the the Freikorps, but he was not deeply involved. And it's not clear that he was deeply moved by it either. I mean, this is surely a a visceral experience to see that kind of thing. But this is not necessarily what shaped him. True. Uh, it, that in itself may not ha- is is almost certainly not based on what we know. The moment when he became political, but it is interesting because it definitely provides a very large piece that is tied in easily with the larger Nazi narrative in his later life. Yeah, and and that of the people that he brought in around him later on. Hmm. It it is a, a point of sort of common experience between them. Um, yeah. So apart from the revolution in Halle, there was also the hyperinflation of the early 1920s to contend with. Yeah. And, and, you know, up to this point, kind of the, the life path that Heydrich's parents saw for him and probably that he saw for himself was that he would follow in his father's footsteps. He had been uh, training in music. He was quite competent. And the idea was that eventually he would take over the conservatory and fill his father's shoes. But the economic downturn that accompanied hyperinflation caused some serious trouble for the family business. Uh, When people start losing everything that they have, uh, they don't have money to spend on music lessons anymore. So uh, the conservatory had fewer and fewer pupils. And this threatened to destroy Hedrick's family. And this pushed Reinhard towards a career in the Navy rather than a music career. Much to the chagrin of his father. But for, for the young Hedrick, it was a matter of having a career with the future as opposed to one where, as the elder Hedrick, Bruno Hedrick, would write in his letters, the gramophone was replacing traditional music lessons and actually knowing how to play an instrument as, as a form of kind of home entertainment. And as Chris said, the hyperinflation just, you know, if you're, if you are living at a time in history when you need to take your wages and immediately go to the store to buy food, because within a few hours, that amount of money that you've just been paid will no longer get you groceries or, and will be worthless. You don't have the extra money to go spending on luxuries like music lessons. <laughs> and Hedrick really was quite lucky to find a place in the Navy because, of course, this is, this is the, the post-war Navy. The, the military as a whole uh, has been severely circumscribed. <laughs> and yeah, this was an opportunity for him. He became a cadet who was going to train uh, as a naval officer and this is a very respectable position it's something that he can support himself on and that he may be able to to build a family on as well what kind of place was the navy in 1920s germany well here's the thing about the the interwar german navy 
they had a bit of a a black past from the very end of the war. Uh, this whole stab in the back thing, you could argue that the Navy had held the knife. It had been the mutiny at Kiel that had touched off the whole revolution that, that brought the war and the Kaiserreich to an end. And because of this, the, the Navy as an institution was hyper-nationalist in the interwar period. That there was this kind of collective desire to make up for uh, what had happened uh, at the end of the First World War. So it was a, a nationalist, conservative organization. But within the Navy, Heydrich was really an outsider. He, he didn't participate in, in these kind of uh, nationalist activities. Uh, he was more the, the sensitive type. Uh, he was known for... He would still retire to his quarters after service to go and play the violin, right? Yeah, play, play the violin. And, and he was seen by some of his compatriots as uh, a little effeminate. Uh, these rumors that he might have a Jewish background uh, persisted at this time. I think some referred to him as a white Jew. Is that right? This is, this is from Google Books, uh, Hadrick the Face of Evil. Uh, his naval colleagues called him the white Jew. Indeed correct, according to Google Books, who fact-checked for us. <laughs> uh, so, in, in any case, he, he is something of an outsider uh, within the Navy. But, you know, by all accounts, he was, he was very competent. Mm -hmm. uh, he was an, an able naval officer. And though, you know, when he was in these, these situations where he had a kind of a peer group, he was an outsider. When he was in a position of authority, uh, he had a very different attitude that he could be arrogant towards his subordinates and, and express a, a more dominant personality. Yeah, his superiors definitely marked him as somebody who was both extremely ambitious and capable, but as when he was in a position of authority, he was notable for the extreme demands that he placed on his subordinates. And as Chris says, the arrogant attitude and style of command that he had toward them. This was not the only personal characteristic that he became known for, though. Perhaps the most, well, not perhaps, the most important part of his personality in his naval career was his tendency toward uh, womanizing. It is, in fact, how he met his wife and how he ended his naval career. He met his future wife, Lena Hadrick, at a dance. And as part of a whirlwind romance, he actually proposed marriage to her on their second date. Lena was from a petty nobility family, a sort of Jane Austen-style narrative of a fall from provenance. And as a result of their reduced financial status, had become committed Nazis already. So apparently, this was not the first dance that Heydrich had attended, nor was it the first woman that he had uh, engaged in a, a rather intense romance with, because when Heydrich sent out his engagement announcement cards, he was called before a military court of honor. So the reason for this was that Heydrich was already involved with another woman who apparently had understood that they were in fact engaged 
And Heydrich had done nothing to disabuse her of this notion as he in his relationship with Lena developed. And in fact, it looks like even after Lena had agreed to marry Heydrich, he continued uh, this rendezvous in, in some way. Regardless, this other young woman was remarkably well-connected, or well, her father was remarkably well-connected, because we don't know who exactly she was or who exactly he was. But as I said, Heydrich got called up in front of a court of honor to answer for behavior unbecoming of an officer of the German Navy. A court of honor uh, headed by Admiral Rader. Yes, sorry. Yes, this is worth pointing out. The head of the German Navy. Not just not just a little one, but the whole the head, the honcho, right? What's interesting and the the political truism here, it's not the it's not the scandal, it's the cover-up, tends to hold true. People who observed and actually served on the courts martial said it wasn't what Heydrich had done that ended his naval career. It was the fact that before the court, he became defensive arrogant, refused to give an inch, and basically said that the young woman was an idiot, uh, as, as I read their descriptions, that uh, he, had done, he had done nothing to tell her that they were going to be engaged and that if she thought that, that was none of his business and just generally was a, a real stand-up guy, you know, was, was remarkably callous. So as a result, he was drummed out of the Navy with a... Uh, quite possibly the most positive reference from uh, an, an employer to fire somebody ever with his life in ruins and his marriage postponed because he no longer had this promising career that could support a family. So we find Heydrich in, in the early 1930s looking for a position that will recover his prestige, recently disgraced, and just sort of completely adrift in life after appearing as though he was on path to a successful career in the Navy. So kind of one fell swoop, Heydrich had lost his job and he was on the verge of losing Lena as well. So they needed to find a solution. They needed to find a, a new career for him, a place where maybe he could enjoy the same sense of position that he had uh, as a naval officer. The military trappings were apparently attractive to him as well, uh, and a salary so that they could go ahead with their marriage. Well, because Lena's family had been early converts to the Nazi cause, uh, they had some connections. And at this time, 1931, Himmler was looking to put together a security service, and he needed somebody to take on that job. So, through Lena's connections, Patrick was able to get an interview with Himmler for, for this position. But Himmler ended up canceling on Heydrich, but Lena told him to just do it anyway. She packed a bag for him, uh, sent him off, and, and Himmler did wind up seeing Heydrich. And you know, by all accounts, uh, Himmler was very impressed by Heydrich. It's important to note that, that Heydrich is a... Striking figure. Yes, he, he is the ideal Aryan form, uh, as Himmler would have seen it. Uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, large person. More than six feet tall, right? Uh, muscular, per 
kept up with a punishing, uh, well, by times punishing, by other times ambitious uh, physical fitness schedule. You know, this is a guy who competed in competed in fencing, right? And would continue to do so through his career in the Nazi hierarchy. But that's not enough for Himmler to give him a job. You can't just look the part. You have to also be able to act the part. And that's exactly what, what Heydrich did. He, he acted the part. He didn't really know what he was talking about. Uh, but when Himmler asked him to you know, sketch out uh, a model for how the security service might work, Heydrich was able to draw on one of his old hobby horses, and that was reading spy and detective novels. So he just pulled information from these these fiction books, and Himmler Himmler bought it. Himmler embraced it and gave him the job. It's interesting to note the letter that Himmler had received from Lena's contact said that Heydrich was a member of the Naval Intelligence Service. Well, the, this misunderstanding actually did become clear over the course of the meeting. Himmler apparently said, so you were in Naval Intelligence. He said, no, I'm not part of Naval Intelligence. He's like, oh, well, how would you do it anyway? And yeah, so he falls back on crime novels to actually present a present a, a a plan to Himmler. It's very much a case of the blind leading the blind, but it works. And, and it's interesting because even though the party at this time is not well paid and doesn't guarantee any prestige, this is still the 1930s. The Nazis haven't come to power yet. Uh, Heydrich's already, it's more attractive to Heydrich to have this type of, of official or something that looks like an official function, something that carries a paramilitary air to it with a uniform and with a rank than it is to have a steady job with a salary. He turned down a good job, a really good job as a yachting instructor in the middle of the Great Depression in order to take a far more precarious and less well-paid job with Himmler. So what was that job? Well, I, I think there's one other thing that's worth pointing out about this whole uh, recruitment effort. Uh, Himmler recognized uh, that Heydrich was a person who was on the outs. Mm. And this he was the kind of person that, that Himmler looked for because if you, you know, throw someone a lifeline, uh, they're much more likely to be loyal to you in the future. Uh, so by giving Heydrich this opportunity after his disgraceful exit from the Navy, Himmler could expect that he would, would get more support from Heydrich. So, the job that Heydrich was taking up from Himmler was to create and then lead the security service, the, the SD or the Sicherheitsdienst. Uh, and this organization uh, was supposed to be an intelligence service that, that they were going to uh, investigate enemies of the party and identify them, communists, uh, and enemies within the party as well. But when it starts out, it's it's just a couple of people. Hadrig is sharing a typewriter with someone else when they first uh, establish the security service. It's It's nothing close to what it will be in the future. And a lot of the work that he's doing is not so much 
intelligence type work. It's going out on the streets and busting heads, breaking up communist meetings. And this is where he gets the title, The Blonde Beast, that the, the German communists referred to him as The Blonde Beast, uh, because he was this imposing figure. And when, when he showed up, people noticed. So at this time, he's in this milieu of Munich during the rise of the party on the lead up to the 1933 elections, picking up this attitude of an uncompromising ideological hardness towards ideological enemies. Yeah, he, he's, he's seeing politics as uh, a, a struggle, a violent struggle, a zero-sum game uh, where there are only winners and losers and nothing in between. Uh, and it's, it's here in the streets with the SA, not in the Navy, that he started to pick up these ideas. And he's looking to Himmler as an ideological guide. He's learning from Himmler. He's internalizing these ideas uh, that are coming from the top of the SS. That at the same time, he's working during the day with the SA, who are going out and involved in street fighting. So he's proving his loyalty to the movement on a daily basis by displaying this, you know, quote unquote, necessary hardness, which is to become an SS trope, really moving forward and an expectation of SS men on a daily basis during all of the election battles that are occurring in the late 19, early 1930s. Yeah, and, and it's important that, that he has these opportunities uh, to prove himself also because he's such a latecomer to the party that he's only just joined in, in 1931. So he has to demonstrate his commitment. Yeah, Heydrich, Heydrich comes to the SS before Hitler becomes the chancellor in 1933, but he's not what would be called an old fighter of the party who's been around since the it first arose as a movement in Munich and built itself out across Germany in the mid-1920s. He's a relative newcomer, and for that reason, it may be why he adopts such a, 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 a radical attitude. There's a few things contributing here, right? Because as you say, Chris, Himmler had thrown him a lifeline. So this is a man who had rescued him from ruin and disgrace. And at the same time, he's also within a movement that has a very particular attitude toward how one is to deal with political opponents that it is active on a daily basis. It's not just something that's he's reading about or thinking about. It's something that he's actively engaged in on a daily basis. So during this time, uh, as he's imbibing the ideology of the Nazi movement and becoming politicized, Heydrich's job is to build up the SS intelligence service, the SD, Sicherheitsdienst, which literally, or well, the literal translation is security service. The SD's job is to research three things. One, foreign affairs, two, internal affairs, and three, and this is what makes it really unpopular, the party. So infiltration into the Nazi party was a major issue for the movement, uh, particularly because, I, I mean, even Heydrich's competitor in the position that he was now in was actually a, an infiltrator from the Bavarian political police of the day. 
which is remarkably ironic considering the later career that we'll get to. But uh, at any rate, it was Heydrich's job to build this intelligence service that was a, remarkably amateurish at the outset. It had longstanding problems with its funding because it came from the party. It would, it would, the money would come infrequently and sometimes not at all. Uh, so really the informants that they were gathering at this time were SS men who were passing information or writing reports on an entirely voluntary basis and completely unremunerated for their efforts. Well, at the same time, they weren't making any friends in the party because it was, uh, it was partially their job to look into and question the loyalty of other members of the Nazi party. As a result, Heydrich actually ended up running the SD during this period out of his apartment because he felt that he couldn't trust his co-workers in the, the party's main offices at the so-called Brown House. So you can see at this time, he begins to develop a paranoid mindset that would in many ways come to define him later in his, in his career. But his, his real opportunity wouldn't come until after the Nazi party attained real power with Hitler's assumption of the position of chancellor. But, you know, in the beginning, Hitler didn't have a whole lot of positions on his cabinet that he had a choice in uh, filling. Uh, and the same was true for, for much of the government. And Himmler wound up getting cut out of major government appointments. Now, he did become the commandant of the Bavarian political police, but it would be Goering uh, who would control the Prussian secret police, uh, create the Gestapo. So, Heydrich brought his experience trying to build up this nascent intelligence service to his new position within the Bavarian political police. Because he was Himmler's deputy, he was put in charge of the actual executive activities of the Bavarian political police. And he immediately set about compiling lists of former communists. Uh, enemy lists is another major characteristic that would come to define Heydrich and the security services under him. Uh, he went through all of the old records of the, the, the short-lived Munich Soviet Republic of 1919 and tried to learn what he could about the operation of the way that the, the communist networks operated from those records. He also met Heinrich Muller at this time, the man who would later become the head of the Gestapo underneath Heydrich. So at, this is the moment that Heydrich really has an opportunity to begin exercising the levers of power, to understand how public office works, and specifically to understand how a political police operate. Yeah, this was the first time that that it was really real for Heydrich, that this was not some amateur show where they were drawing most of their information from voluntary reports provided by uh, other members of their own organization. This was the place where Heydrich gets his first experience at the head of a police force and has real executive power and can begin to experiment. This is important experience because Himmler's star continues to rise at this time. Now, Himmler becomes the compromise candidate 
in a power struggle between Goering and Frick in Prussia. This is important because Prussia is the largest and politically most powerful state in Germany at this time. So if a legal precedent is established in Prussia, then that will become legal precedent for the rest of the country when implemented by courts, things like this, right? So it's the political center. And Goering and Frick happen to be fighting over who's going to control the political police. Frick wants to absorb them into the national level Ministry of the Interior and Goering, obviously policing and state violence being an important part of anybody's power base, wants to make sure that he retains control over that institution. So Himmler emerges as a compromise candidate, but he's been very busy in the meantime, running around the country, unifying all of the different political police commands and getting appointments from local political leaders to be in charge of, say, the political police in uh, Stuttgart or wherever, the same way that he's in charge of the political police for Bavaria. So with the appointment in Prussia, Himmler is able to unify the political police services across Germany. And Heydrich, as Himmler's deputy, steps into the role as the executive head for political policing across all of the German states. As a result, Heydrich goes from being in charge of the political police in one German state to the entire country. And I think uh, Lena sent a letter after he got that position uh, saying that it made her laugh that he would have uh, such a, a lofty position uh, as to be the head of political police for the whole of the country. This is very important because the SS has been subordinate to the SA up to this point. So who were the SA, Chris? Well, the SA, the, the brown shirts, the street fighters from the Kampfzeit, uh, they were the more revolutionary, radical arm of the party that envisioned a second revolution. The leader of uh, the SA, Ernst Rome, hoped that the SA might you know, replace the military. But, you know, this wasn't uh, a terribly popular idea. It, it caused a lot of uh, anxiety uh, for the the German people, uh, for German conservative elites, and for Hitler himself. So matters would have to come to a head at some point. There was going to be the Second Revolution, or the SA was going to be dealt with. And one of the tools for dealing with with the SA would be Heydrich's SD. So when the Nazis came to power in 1933, they had promised that they were going to end the threat of a communist revolution, which had seemed to be looming as part of the Great Depression in the late 1920s and into the early 1930s. There were 6 million Germans who were unemployed. It's a very large number. And they were going to also deal with that unemployment by providing work to Germans. So really it was a promise to prevent revolution but also to solve the economic crisis. So when the Nazis came to power, they came on this wave of popular support that did not go over 50%, but did hold a, a significant backing in the, in the general population. By 1934, that initial enthusiasm and willingness to try anything in order to resolve the crisis had faded. Only two, 2 million of the 6 million people who had been unemployed had found work, that work was often very precarious and would go from week to week. Uh, there was these rolling 
material shortages because there's a shortage of, of exchange currency. So if you had work in a factory, you, they, that factory might not have the raw materials to be in production from week to week. So the, the economic recovery at this point was still very tenuous. For this reason, the SA and its calls for a second social revolution saying, okay, now Hitler's in power and we, the brown shirts, are ready to carry out the social revolution that we were always promising all along. We're starting to gain steam again. At first, Hitler had managed to build his coalition by bringing in some of the revolutionary elements into the SA, the so-called left wing of the party, but marrying that with the more conservative elements and the middle classes who constituted the right wing of the party who were more concerned about a, a, the, the threat of a communist revolution. So this provoked a, a government crisis for Hitler uh, when his vice chancellor and conservative cabinet coalition partner, Franz von Papen, held a major speech at Marburg that said, have we gone through an anti-Marxist revolution in order to carry out a Marxist program? So this scandal uh, threatens Hitler's position, and he determines that he has to do something about it, that Rome and the SA must be dealt with. But how? In order to move against them, there had to be some kind of some justification, something that he, he could point to, to say, you know, that this is why we've removed them. And that would be Heydrich's task as the head of the SD to find the incriminating evidence that would allow Hitler to move against Rome. And that's exactly what he did. The, the documents were fabricated, but they suggested that Rome was looking to take over the country for himself. And on the basis of this justification, they would initiate a purge of the SA in the Night of the Long Knives. And what came out of it was the, the murder of some 200 people, including Rome and much of the SA leadership. So having decapitated the leadership of the SA and the threat of revolution apparently having been dealt with, everybody was happy except for the SA. However, as an important consequence of this, because the SS had provided the information and they had acted at, on behalf of Hitler and this was a characteristic of the SS, was extreme personal loyalty to Hitler individually. The SS, rather than the SA, would be the more important institution moving forward. And they gained independence now from the SA that they had been previously under. Later on uh, in 1938, when the Reich first looked to expand its borders uh, into Austria, Heydrich would also have a very personal role to play. Uh, he would organize task forces to go into Austria with their enemy lists and round up these people, prominent communists, members of the Austrian government, and ship them off to uh, concentration camps and prisons. And these would be the first SD Einsatzgruppen, uh, which would become very infamous later on. But this was part of the process of subjugating new territory. The first new territory to be subjugated would be to send these task forces in behind the military in order to establish a police presence. 
And because they came in with enemy lists already in hand and intending to sack the registries of party offices and local administrators in order to find out who the troublemakers were and then detain those people, Austria really provided a dry run for what would become the standard operating procedures of the SS as a security force when it moved in behind the army. That's right. And they would repeat this same process again in the Sudetenland and then in the rest of Czechoslovakia, uh, each time dispatching Einsatzgruppen to capture documents with their enemy lists in order to establish the power of the police there. Hmm. As Chris pointed out before the interview, or before we started recording, this had a really important effect of expanding the power of the the SD and of the police services over what happened in the territories, right? The old the old dictum that information is power. Well, if you come in and you you take all the records, that gives you a lot of power in the new area that you've just taken over. Yeah, and, and they were one of the first people through the door. And and the whole process is analogous to adopting the police records from the Weimar period when they took over the the police in uh, the early 1930s. There would be another consequence of bringing Austria and the Sudetenland and Czechoslovakia into the Reich. With the Anschluss, the uh, acquisition of Austria, more Jews would be brought into the Reich. Now, up to this point, there had been a concerted effort to encourage Jews to emigrate from the country by increasingly violent means. Yes, this of course being a euphemism for threatening, attacking, sacking, and otherwise making life untenable uh, for for Jewish citizens. Not to mention economic expropriation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think Heydrich wrote a memo that said that young Jews should see that it is impossible for them to have a future in Germany. And by by these forms of coercion, economic, physical, and otherwise, gradually removing the civil rights of, of Jews, as, as were exemplified in the Nuremberg Laws, eventually forcing them to leave the country or making it so that remaining in Germany seemed to be an impossibility. Yeah, but this whole program would intensify after the Anschluss. Uh, the most notorious event that that followed the acquisition of Austria uh, would be Kristallnacht, the night of November 9th to 10th in 1938, when the Jewish businesses across the country had their windows smashed. Sometimes uh, they were looted, synagogues were burned, Jews were arrested on the streets, and many were sent to concentration camps. Uh, and Heydrich would have a personal role in Kristallnacht. Now, it wasn't necessarily the approach that he preferred. He really preferred orderly persecution rather than this kind of mob action. But uh, all the same, when it was clear what was about to happen, he took a, a hands-off approach, instructing the police not to interfere in what was to come that night. Why was what Heydrich called orderly anti-Semitism a better approach in his eyes? 
right? Like why, if, if he's an anti-Semite, why is he saying that we shouldn't do, we shouldn't be attacking Jews? Well, I mean, that's, that's certainly not his view for how Germany and Germans should behave, that he's a, a man of rules of law and order that in in some ways this kind of action by by regular germans is you know it's inappropriate this isn't isn't how you would expect germans to behave uh and on top of that there's a danger to property that if you're rolling around lighting fires and and stealing things this is going to impact the economy moreover this Jewish property, in, in his eyes, belonged to the Reich, to the entirety of the German people, and not to whatever individual happened to smash a window and run in and grab it. Yeah, in, in a perverse way, this, this uncontrolled or so-called wild anti-Semitism is seen as an attack on the German people because you're destroying property that rightfully belongs to the German people and is going to be expropriated from these Jews who have acquired it through means and conspiracy that are, you know, we're going to cast them out. And when we do, we're going to get it back. So I, it, I've, I've always found that particularly bizarre. And there's also this element to it as well. Uh, he, he's very conscious of foreign public opinion and thinks that displaying, as you say, this lack of order merely hands propaganda to the opponents of this larger goal that he has in mind of making Germany free of Jews. Yeah, but despite his opinions, uh there was plenty of destruction uh, and plenty of looting during Kristallnacht. They had instructed the the police that that looters should be arrested, but it didn't happen. And afterwards, you know, the popular opinion uh, really rejected the event uh, because of the destruction of property that it involved. Uh, so the solution wound up being to charge the Jewish community to pay for the damage that had been done during Kristallnacht. So all of these anti-Semitic campaigns are grounded in this larger thinking about a Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy. But because Heydrich is the man who is in charge of the security services, and later the man who will be responsible for orchestrating the Holocaust through his Reich security main office, it pays to have an understanding of how he specifically views this larger idea. So we have a very interesting set of articles that he wrote in early 1935, uh, spring 1935, published in the SS newspaper Das Schwarze Korps, and later republished by Franz Ehr Verlag as a series of uh, small pamphlets that were, you know, required reading. But it's, it's known as Transformations of Our Struggle. And in this, Heydrich really sketches his image, uh, and it's a very paranoid world, of a, a larger conspiracy against Germany. On the one hand, there's the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy, but on the other hand, there's also the anti-clericalism and concerns about Freemasonry that he all ties together under this larger image of the opponent. So Heydrich views three threats against Germany. On the one hand, he says there's the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy. So communism and organizations like Freemasonry are merely what he calls cover, cover fr or fronts or cover organizations 
useful tools towards a purpose, that a larger Jewish conspiracy is using to undermine Germany. So without any real regard for logical consistency, this includes the sort of capitalist internal circles of the Freemasons on the one hand, but also the Communist Party on the other hand. All of them are just front organizations for a broader Jewish conspiracy. And it's the, the, the internationalist character of each of these institutions that uh, I think Hedrick is looking to, to see conspiracy, that these are not organizations that are concerned with, with Germany, that they, they are baseless. The clergy looks to Rome. Bolshevism has a world vision. Capitalism as well uh, is uh, directed outward everywhere. And he sees the Jews as the guiding force behind all of these international movements. Hedrick also has this second prong of anti-clericalism that mirrors his thinking about the Jewish conspiracy in that it is targeted against a baseless institution that owes its loyalty to something that is not Germany or his idea of Germany. And that is the Catholic Church. In this case, the, the conspiratorial organization are the Jesuits. And that's because they're responsible and the Catholic Church more broadly is responsible to Rome under the doctrine of ultramontanism, over which much ink was spilled in the late 19th and early 20th century in Germany. So as Gerwarth points out, there's an important difference because Germans who were Catholics in their identity could be saved, quote unquote, from the alien influence of these cosmopolitan forces of anti-clericalism, just as Freemasons could recognize that, oh, I'm being influenced by what is ultimately a front organization for the Jewish world conspiracy, but that Jews could not because their identity was ethnically defined. If you were Jewish, or even if you were, you know, you didn't have to be Jewish, you just had to have Jewish relatives, right? Then you were automatically guilty as a result of your identity. Uh, whereas other Germans could could be treated in the same way if their opposition to Nazism was grounded in one of these identities, but there was always an opportunity for Germans to step outside of them in a way that there was not for Jews. So this thinking really defines internal policing through the 1930s, and it definitely affects who is targeted by the political police and who is dealt with more harshly and who is dealt with more mildly when they step out of line. But the war really removes whatever restraint there is on the security services. Yeah, and, and the war would be a tremendous opportunity for Hadrick to reimagine and expand his role. And all kinds of things would change with the beginning of the war. This effort that went back to the beginning of the regime of encouraging Jews to emigrate would be abandoned during the war, although it wouldn't be until 1941 that Himmler explicitly stated that Jews may not emigrate anymore. But all the same, once the war had started, that policy effectively was abandoned. The war would also see the beginning of indefinite detainment in concentration camps, uh, that is, uh, rather than being sent to a concentration camp for a specified period of time, everyone who was in a camp was to remain there until the end of the war. 
On top of this, Heydrich himself would gain a new position after the creation of the Reich Security main office, which he would thereafter lead. And the war also provided new spaces where Heydrich and the SD and the police could experiment that right with the opening of Poland, they had a new laboratory to develop their, their racial policies to develop systems for controlling resistance, uh, which was now not just political, but also oftentimes open partisan violence. Yeah, the task groups, when they're sent to Austria or when they are sent to the Sudetenland to consolidate the power of the new government, are still dealing with Germans. They're still dealing with people who, although they may be communists and opponents of the Nazi regime, are still Aryan. However, once you cross the frontier into Poland, one, you're dealing with an area that the Nazi ideology says is going to be Germanized and integrated into the Reich as living space. And two, you're dealing with people, Poles, who in the Nazi racial hierarchy are considered to be inferior subhumans that don't even rate as full people. So this drastically expands the power of the task groups, the Einsatzgruppen, to experiment because you're not in Germany anymore. You're in the empire and you're not dealing with Germans anymore. You're dealing with Slavic subhumans. Yeah, so the war with Poland would be a major transformation point for Heydrich. And I don't think it would be totally out of line to say that Heydrich fired the first shots of the Second World War because uh, it was he that staged this mock attack uh, on Germany by Poles, although it wasn't actually Poles. uh, It was actually Germans who were pretending uh, to attack some communication outpost or a post office, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in the, in the list of true conspiracies. Yeah. Oh yeah. This, <laughs> this is no doubt. This was an out and out conspiracy to give some kind of pretext to start an invasion of Poland. And that was Heydrich's operation. Although I think they called it operation Himmler, uh, but he, he was deeply involved in it. Yeah, I believe uh, – no, he didn't do it, but he ordered the selection of prisoners from from concentration camps to be dressed up as Poles and shot with German weapons and left at the site of the attack. It was a radio station. Ah, all right. Thanks. Because that's why – because when the Poles, the quote-unquote the Poles, crossed the border and attacked the radio station, they were on air to announce that they were under attack by Poles and then a bunch of people got on the radio and – uh, started speaking Polish. That's very convenient. Right? So it is It is one of the few cases of an actual for real false flag attack in history. Uh, but of course, that, that wasn't even the beginning of the end of Heydrich's involvement in Poland. This time, the Einsatzgruppen that followed the military uh, were going to be much more violent than they'd been in the past. They still had their enemies list, but now the fate of the enemies uh, was 
outright summary execution. And the targets of the Einsatzgruppen were the perceived upper stratum of Polish society. These were to be decapitation executions. So they were targeting the clergy, intelligentsia, the nobility, and uh, quite a few Jews as well. And all told, the Einsatzgruppen would execute something like 16,000 people uh, in the, the course of the war in Poland. Anyone who was in a position of influence would be tracked down and killed, as Chris said, to remove any political leadership of the Polish people. Whether it came from the church or whether it came from former politicians or state administrators, anyone who was in a position of authority was at risk. Yeah, and, and that would thereafter often be the MO of the Einsatzgruppen. But there was a little problem with this, uh, that Heydrich had never run his plans by the military. So when these executions began, the military became aware of it. And while in, in some places there was cooperation uh, and assistance, there was quite a bit of pushback within the military against what was happening behind the lines. Now, Hitler would eventually step in and really clearly sided with Heydrich. Uh, he granted retroactive amnesty to any Germans who had committed crimes against the Polish people. But all the same, I mean, this, this was dangerous to Heydrich's position, the resistance from the military, and uh, he agreed to halt executions until a civilian administration could take over so that it wouldn't be uh, a stain on the Wehrmacht. There were also some long-term effects in the way that the Reich Security main office and the police were involved in future campaigns for the next few years out, coming out of Poland. So after the campaign in Poland was concluded, Germany invaded Norway, ostensibly to protect it from British occupation. But the Einsatzgruppen there act much more like they did in Austria and Czechoslovakia than they did in Poland. Heydrich also has this opportunity to sort of pursue his combat fantasies while he is in Norway. He actually takes part in combat sorties with the Air Force, the Luftwaffe, and his plane, of course, carries a, a Siegrun on the side, the one of the S's in SS, which stands for victory, because of course he does, right? But after Norway, there's France. Yeah, and France... The campaign there was really a setback for Heydrich. Poland had been an opportunity for experimentation, for him to expand his power, as, as had been Austria and Czechoslovakia. He kind of gets cut out of the power arrangement in France. Now, the fall of France was much more rapid than expected, and, and Heydrich kind of dropped the ball on it, probably in part because of this enduring tension with the military over what had happened in Poland. Uh, but there aren't any Einsatzgruppen in France. And following the successful toppling of uh, the French state, uh, Heydrich would have he – wouldn't, he wouldn't have a, a role in policing occupied France the way he had in these other occupied territories. It would become a military occupation regime instead. So there are arguments to be made why this is the case in both directions. 
Gervarth's biography seems to suggest that it is because Heydrich fails to have the same level of involvement in France that he did in Poland, and that this is in part a result of military pushback. On the other side, the established and more traditional narrative is that the the policy goals of the regime were more, were set in the East in a different way than they were in the West. The West was about knocking France out of the war and uh, righting the wrongs of the Versailles Treaty and perhaps financially humiliating and reducing France, but not incorporating it and Germanizing it into, as a part of Germany in the same way that Lebensraum in the East was going to be treated. Yeah, and, and of course, there's also the the whole question of racial ideology as well, that the Slavs in the East, under the, the Nazi worldview, uh, can justifiably be treated in a much different way than Western Europeans. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that one of one of the insights that Galately imparted unto me was that this is one of the drawbacks of political biography, is that if you try and trace world events through a single life, that single life is always going to seem to be more important, perhaps, than the events that are surrounding them. So you, you can lose perspective on causation. Overall, I think it's a great book. This was one of the places where I was curious. It, it's certainly an, it's an interesting interpretation and very, very different than anything I've ever encountered before. But of course, we know things did not end with France. There was the UK ahead and the, the SD did have plans for what to do in case of an occupation of the British Isles. They had their enemy lists, uh, which interestingly enough included H.G. Wells and as you might expect, Churchill. And Heydrich flew combat missions there as well. But he was always set up so that he was never in any danger. Yeah, and this we see this this characteristic of Heydrich uh, continuing to develop. I mean, he has his paranoid streak that he's he's worried about his own personal security. He is a a security man after all, but he's a bit of a daredevil, right? He he's he's now uh, flown combat missions uh, over several different countries, not exposing himself to direct danger, but showing a willingness to take some risks with his personal safety. Danger adjacent. Yeah. So the point that Gervarth makes about Heydrich dropping the ball and not being prepared for the occupation of France in the same way that he was for the occupation of Poland is supported by the way that he looks at the relationships between Heydrich and the army on the approach to Operation Barbarossa. And on that note, we draw this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. Next time, we will be tracing the career of Heydrich from the invasion of the Soviet Union up until his ultimate demise at the hands of a Czech and Slovak commando team. Political biography is a new approach for us on the show, and we'd love to hear what you have to say, good, bad, or indifferent. If you have any questions, comments, or perhaps suggestions for a topic of discussion that you'd like to see on another episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can get a hold of me at Staxomatics, that's S-T-A-X-O-M-A-T-I-X on Twitter or Facebook. You can look me up there under my name. Chris, of course, issues all social media, but I will be happy to pass along any comments that you happen to have for us. With that, I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.